This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. In a future issue of QST Magazine, I'll be doing a product review of an external audio filter. I won't mention the manufacturer or the model here, lest I steal the thunder of the upcoming review. But the reason for speaking about it at all is that the review gave me an excellent opportunity to kind of reacquaint myself with audio filtering. Back in the day, that day being more than about 15 years ago, audio filters were more common. This was before the advent of off-the-shelf software-defined transceivers with their ultra-sharp software filtering. One of my favorite transceivers here at my station is an ICOM IC7300. I've owned it for a few years now, yet I'm still amazed with what its software-defined architecture can do, especially during CW contests when the bands are packed with signals just wall-to-wall. Prior to the software-defined radio revolution, analog transceivers typically offered two options to improve receiver filtering. You could install a crystal or mechanical filter in the intermediate frequency stages, or attempt to filter the signals at the audio output. The superior option was to install narrower, intermediate frequency filters, but these often tended to be expensive. Of course, analog transceivers are still being sold today, as are optional IF filters. But the demand isn't what it used to be, so those IF filters are even more expensive. And of course, many analog rigs don't even have the option to install IF filters. This is particularly true of QRP rigs that you might build from kits. So, this brings us back to audio filtering. I'd say it's been probably more than 20 years since I had played with a high-performance DSP audio filter. Frankly, I had assumed these little boxes had long gone extinct, but no. A few are still around, and I have to say it was a pleasure to be reminded of exactly what they can do. The audio filter in question, the one you'll see the review of later, uses digital signal processing, which is to say it takes the audio from the transceiver's headphone jack, converts it to digital information, processes it, and then finally converts the result back to analog audio. Working with audio frequencies isn't the best way to filter signals, to be sure. I mean, for example, there's nothing the filter can do about so-called AGC pumping that you get from strong nearby signals. Even so, a good audio filter can still do a commendable job of separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, and allowing you to narrow things down to just one or two signals. Here's an example. First, let's listen to the 20-meter band using a kit-built receiver and the audio filter attached to the headphone jack and set to its widest setting, which in this case was 2700 hertz. Notice how you heard two separate CW signals, right? Well, let's switch the audio filter to its narrow setting, which is 300 hertz.
And there you have it. Two signals have now been reduced to just one. I suppose I could be criticized for indulging in nostalgia here. I mean, if I switched to my IC7300, I could have plowed right through these signals with far superior filtering performance. But the reason for doing this was to make a point. Not all technology becomes utterly obsolete over time. Yes, there are superior methods and superior radios. But if you have an analog rig that lacks narrow IF filtering, and I'm thinking of QRP kits here again, but also a few off-the-shelf analog rigs that are still being sold, it's a good idea to remember that some of that so-called obsolete technology, such as DSP audio filters, can still be helpful today and at a very attractive price. I'm speaking with Bryant Juhlstrom, KC0ZNG, and in the July 2021 issue of QST Magazine, in the Hints and Hacks column, Brian wrote about what he called an AC dummy load. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. So what exactly is an AC dummy load? Well, the idea here is to be able to provide an adjustable load to low-voltage AC sources. In particular, we're thinking here of transformers, as one might buy at a ham fest, or as I have done sometimes more than one. But ham fest finds often we don't know a lot about their properties. You know, it says 6.3 volt transformer or something similar, but what current is it rated at? What, uh, what kind of behavior might we expect from such a device? So the idea is to be able to provide uh, an adjustable load where we can see the current drawn from the device and the resulting voltage and thus determine the properties of the transformer or whatever. Uh, the QST piece in particular has an example graph showing uh, the measured output voltage of a particular transformer as a function of the current that's drawn from it. And it would be no surprise, of course, to notice that if the current drawn is very low, the voltage is higher than rated. And if the current drawn is higher than the rating of the transformer, the output voltage will be lower than its rated value as well. And it's nice to know how that all fits together so that we can use the thing appropriately. So that's the general idea. Okay. Do do these exist, Bryant, in the commercial market as well or not? I did not have a lot of luck finding anything like it. Um, so my guess is not particularly, but just because I can't find something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> my garage is, a, is an example. <laughs> you built this yourself, and it, it's it's really a work of art. How long did it take you to not only design it, but actually build it? Well, I was looking at my notes in preparation for this conversation, and I, not terribly long. Uh, the circuit was breadboarded, of course, before it was put together, and the uh, the whole thing, let's see... I guess maybe two and a half, three weeks for the entire project. Uh, <laughs> I'm turning pages in my notes to, to look at the dates. This allows me to digress a little bit, too, on the, on the topic of notes. Uh, one should always keep them. That's the main thing. Uh, it's nice to be able to look back and see where an idea came from, how it developed, how it got implemented, what went wrong along the way, if anything did, and so on. And... We tend to think if if we do a project, of course we'll remember it because, hey, we did it. But 
if you wait six months and go back and look at the thing, often it's difficult to remember exactly what you were doing at the time. And keeping notes is, it seems a little tedious sometimes in, in the moment, but it makes what follows so much easier. Oh, absolutely. I can think of many times when I really wished I had done that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the trick is the discipline that it requires. And uh, I've been less diligent in some cases than I should have been. You know, you should write something down right away when you do it. Uh, and that's hard to do. That's hard to do. Now, the article has, of course, a schematic diagram. But unfortunately, we, well, I say the QSD graphics department, introduced an error into the diagram. Can you describe that? Yeah, there are two IRF 542s there. Um, they are adjusted by the potentiometer to provide the necessary resistance, but as presented, the device constitutes a DC sink rather than AC. So either one of the transistors should simply be flipped vertically so that the two diodes pictured are back to back. That's the key thing. And so the result should be that on any half cycle of the AC voltage that's applied, the diode in one of the transistors simply conducts, but the other one provides the necessary resistance. And as the AC voltage goes through its cycle, the two transistors exchange roles repeatedly. So flip one of them over and then it's what's intended. And I admit I should have caught this in proofreading, and I did not. Well, it, it happens all the time, believe me. In fact, uh, Bryant, you had said you were going to uh, send me a uh, revised or correct schematic. Yes. And yes. I'll post that on the Eclectic Tech archive. That's at uh, www.arrl.org forward slash eclectic. We'll also put it in the QST feedback archive, which is also online. So listeners will have two sources to see the corrected one. And in fact, three, because uh, I posted the corrected schematic on my own website as well, which is accessible through St. Cloud State University. Oh, perfect. It's a long, long, long URL, so I won't try to repeat it. But if someone finds my page there, then... It will, be, it will be clear how to get to it. Okay, excellent. Now, imagine for a moment that I've gone to a ham fest. Ham fests are happening again, <laughs> yes. hopefully. Uh, and I have found a transformer. And I'm not entirely sure that it's going to quite do the job for my project. Tell me, Bryant, how I would have to use the AC dummy load to get some sense of its characteristics? Well, the, uh, the two things you want to know here are what does your project require? Let's, again, talk about 6.3 volts because that's a familiar value. Um, what current draw will the device make at that voltage? And then how does the transformer behave with respect to the current drawn? So <clears throat> the thing to do with the device is... Again, you can create a graph like the one in the magazine where you can adjust the current drawn and then read what the voltage is. Uh, and that will give you, of course, an idea of whether the transformer is indeed appropriate to the project. It's too bad that you couldn't take 
the AC dummy load along with you and just plug it in <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> well, in some at some ham fests, there's power available. Probably not the outdoor ones, however. <laughs> just say, excuse me, can I just borrow this transformer just for a moment and run over here and run this test, and I'll be right back. Exactly, exactly. But certainly, uh, I've, I discovered, well, everyone has, if they're working with two projects, a an adjustable regulated power supply to provide the B+. And we generally treat the 6.3 as an afterthought. You know, we just run the wires from the transformer to the output connector, and that's that. But that's probably not always going to be exactly what the tubes expect. And while tubes are robust, uh, you don't want to over-voltage their filaments for too long, <clears throat> nor do you want to provide too low a voltage. And of course, if the voltage is drawn down too far, you're drawing more current than the transformer wants to provide anyway, which is probably not good for the transformer either. So it's nice to know the properties of the transformer before we try to use it. It certainly is. In your usage of the AC dummy load, have you had any interesting discoveries as you've been testing various transformers? The thing I've noticed is that there is more variation than I, than I might have guessed. And so now I'm a bit more cautious about that sort of thing. It would be convenient if there were a good way of regulating an AC voltage, but that's a much trickier business than regulating a DC voltage, and I'm still thinking about that. Yes, it is. Uh, have you noticed the variances more among, say, older uh, vintage transformers versus uh, something that's relatively new? I think maybe the opposite. Oh. I think the Yeah, I think the older stuff tends to be more robust. And a lot of the newer transformers, which typically I think we're not using so much, but they're, they are lower current and seem more sensitive to the current drawn. I, I wouldn't want to go out on a limb and assert that as a general thing, but, but that's, that's been my experience. I imagine a lot of readers are going to uh, be building this. Have you heard from any so far? I've heard from a few people about the correction, <laughs> and I have, I have responded to each of them. Uh, but in terms of, of building it and using it, no, not yet. Uh, one of the issues I think they're going to run into is metering because uh, low volt, it would be nice to use digital meters. We're sort of accustomed to that now. But low voltage AC digital meters are just not a common thing, which is why the unit that's pictured uh, in the piece uses analog meters. Those are much more widely available for low voltage AC. Uh, it's possible, of course, to do measurements of AC, RMS. There are chips that will produce from that the corresponding DC voltage, which can then be measured, and so on. But that's a much more complicated process. Yes. And you you didn't have any difficulty finding uh, the appropriate analog meters? No, not particularly. Uh, we've got a, a 0 to 30 for voltage and a 0 to 5 amps, which seems... I think, plenty for the kind of experimenting that we have in mind here. So these are still commonly available at sources like yeah. uh, Mouser or perhaps DigiKey, something like that. Yeah, and indeed, probably less expensively on some of the, uh, the sites like All Electronics or uh, Alltronics or Electronic Goldmine <laughs> and so on. Uh, those, are, those are all nice sources for this sort of thing. This is an excellent project uh and worthwhile too i mean not just something that 
is fun and educational to build, but something that has definite utility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been enlightening to apply it to transformers in other projects. Uh, I don't know that I've been exactly surprised by any of the results, but it's nice to know exactly the behavior to expect. And in building the permanent version of something, you know exactly what current will be drawn, and then you can make sure that the transformer is appropriately sized for the project. And that's a nice thing to know about. Certainly. And I can't help but get over the fact that you said the older transformers appear to be, uh, well, should I use the term accurate? I'm not sure that's exactly it, but they... mm. Again, I'd hesitate to generalize, but but maybe they vary a little bit less with the current drawn than, than some of the small, modern ones. There are lots of transformers for low voltages that produce small currents, uh, you know, half an amp or, or thereabouts, which is nice for a lot of, of semiconductor projects, and they seem a little bit more sensitive. But again, I, I wouldn't want to generalize. I wouldn't want to... My, my experience isn't wide enough to say that that's, that's actually a fact. Just for grins, would you care to speculate about why there might be a difference between the, uh, oh. the older gear? <laughs> <laughs> um, it may be that, that the smaller, lower current transformers uh, having smaller, smaller gauge windings would thus be of a slightly higher resistance and thus more sensitive to the current drawn. I hadn't thought about that until you asked. <laughs> but but if, I mean, let's think about that. Let's just suppose that we have a, a resistance of, say, 200 ohms in a larger current transformer. Then drawing a different current through it is going to have less effect than if the winding had a resistance of 500. That's true. Yeah, because Ohm's Law... <laughs> I find that, that if you can't do it with Ohm's Law, you can probably get along without it. <laughs> well, Brian, thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for the project. It's a great item for the magazine. I think readers really enjoyed it. Well, I, I hope they don't mind that, <laughs> that there's one little thing to fix. One small thing. One small thing. One small thing, yeah. It does make a difference. Thanks again, Brian. You're very welcome. It's nice talking to you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.